Well, we welcome everybody to this special edition in the summer of View from the Press Box. I'm Scott Hogan, and joining me is Brad Hallier. And Brad, it's been a couple, three weeks since the end of all the uh, kind of our sports season. We, we took a little break, and we've got a lot of uh, material we've compiled. This might be a little bit longer than usual, but it should be a fun one tonight. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, we're, I think we're going to, kind of keep it a little bit different this week and we're kind of uh focusing on, on a, just a couple topics instead of all over the place but um that's kind of why we uh, do this in the summertime just to kind of do something a little bit different well i do have all over the place as well but we'll we'll enjoy both it's just a lot of smaller stuff to go with uh what we're going to tackle tonight here in just a little bit uh you know we, you, you who listen to us on a regular basis kind of know where we already fall on this but we're going to dive into a little bit more the the big private versus public school debate that's um, really gaining traction here, especially in Kansas. We're going to dive into that, but I think we'll start off with, uh, and this just came out a couple of days ago, that the uh, Kesha Kansas State High School Activities Association, uh, Brad, going to be some changes to several of the state championships. This won't be effective this year. This will be in uh 24 for uh certainly for football and i believe it will be the 24th season for all the rest of the sports that we're going to talk about Um, but they have made some changes let's start with football that they are going to go in 2024 that there will be only three sites for state football so they're going to have three games at each site one game on friday the day after thanksgiving and then two games on saturday so before we kind of speculate on what some of the specifics might be what do you think of the change going from the nine sites now down to three it's been kind of asked for uh, for several years, if if not multiple games at one site to maybe stagger the championship game times, because in 11 man football, anyway, uh, they all start at one o'clock. And, uh, you know, if you're, you know, even like a small college coach and you want to do some recruiting or maybe you got, you know, a son playing for one team and a nephew playing somewhere else, uh, you know, you're out of luck. No chance. So, yeah, so I, I think that uh, this is, from that perspective, it, it, they'll still probably be at the same times, but obviously uh, it, the potential for conflicts, if you have something like that come up, or you can go to multiple games at multiple sites, uh, that, that opportunity arises. So uh, I, I think it's been very well received by the public. Well, um, what would make sense, what we think that would happen is you would have six-man and two eight-man games all at one site, probably the six-man on Friday, and the two eight-man like they've been doing for years um, on Saturday. Uh, we would speculate one, two, and three A at one site, four, five, and six A at the other site with probably one A and four A going on Friday and then the other two on Saturday. Uh, that's, that's just speculation that would make the most sense, especially for six and eight man. Um, what do you think about how we're going to pare down where these games were going to be? Cause now the, the, the fun really begins. 
Yeah, so he, he, here's where the state sites were for 22, and I'm guessing probably will be for 23 with maybe one exception. I'm not sure they haven't announced it on their on Cache's website yet. But 6A was in Emporia, 5A was in Pittsburgh, 4A in Topeka, 3A in Hutchinson, 2A in Salina, 1A in Fort Hayes, 8-man in Newton, both 8-man games in Newton. Newton's the only site that hosts more than one game, and 6-man in Dodge City. So I think the first thing we have to do is try to go through the process of elimination and try to figure out who probably will not be hosting. And I think we have to start. I I know everybody would like to see David Booth Memorial Stadium in Lawrence or Bill Snyder Family Stadium in in Manhattan as a state uh, site because I know that they used them before way back in the day. Not going to happen. And for for a couple of reasons. First of all, you got the major renovations getting ready to happen at David Booth Memorial Stadium in Lawrence. So that takes uh, them out. But both those teams are usually playing that weekend. And let's face it, uh, money talks. And if ESPN or Fox Sports tells K-State, hey, you're playing at 11 a.m. on Saturday, they're playing at 11 a.m. on Saturday. Or if they're playing at 5 p.m. on Friday, they're playing at 5 p.m. on Friday. So I don't think KU or K-State could commit to that, Scott. Uh, Do you agree with that? I I would agree. I I, I think that's would be nice. I'm like, you. Yeah, that'd be great for the kids. And at, and at one time, I remember when I was back in high school um, and we were in 3A playoffs, the championship game was at KU. Yep. So it has happened in the past, but um, like you said, the, the, with the TV deals and all that, you know, they move game times all of the time. Uh, not going to happen. They're, they're, they would not commit to, especially this isn't just committing to one game. This is committing to three games if you choose to host, and I would agree, not going to happen at either of those locations. So also grass facilities, so any illusions about playing at Children's Mercy Park in KCK, which would be fantastic, by the way, uh, could not sustain playing three games over a span of, what, maybe 24 hours. So so now let's kind of uh, go through some of these. Uh, Scott, I think Salina would be out. I, I just don't think Salina Central's or Salina District Stadium is big enough to host three games like that. Um, you know, the city obviously probably could. I just don't think Salina's got the facility to pull this off. So I think we can eliminate Salina. Uh, even though Pittsburgh State's got a wonderful facility, I have kind of noticed that Keisha, in general, not, not this is not a blanket saying, but in general, try it looks like even more the more so these days trying to maneuver more to the center of the state for a lot of state events i know this year for state golf gosh they play what seven state uh, golf tournaments 1a through 6a and then sand greens but i think for the six uh 1a through 6a were played along the i-35 i-135 corridor right in the middle of the right smack in the middle of the uh, state and one of them that wasn't on that corridor was an emporia which you know, for a lot of intents and purposes, is pretty much uh, uh, in the central part of the state. Not not exactly more eastern, but still. Uh, but I think that because of Pittsburgh's location being so far in southeastern Kansas, I just don't see that being a viable option because of, of their location. Uh, feel free to disagree with me on that. So uh, just kind of one of your thoughts on Salina in Pittsburgh, if you also think <laughs> that uh, they would probably be eliminated with for, for the reasons I stated. I, I would agree with both of those. I think Salina, um, yeah. It's not big enough. It's not big enough the facility. And I think Pittsburgh's just too far, um, just not centrally located enough. When you're, when you're only talking two teams 
going, that's a little different story. But when you're talking six teams, I think you need to have it um, more centered. Uh, the, the one thing I think, I wouldn't say it would be a done deal. I would think six and both eight man would be in Newton still. Uh, see, here's here's why I think I disagree with you, Scott. Or we um, dodge. Well, I, I actually, and I know that Newton has been a great facility. Um, I actually think that there are five, facility, five facilities that would be probably in the mix for hosting and one potential wild card. I think, and I also would eliminate uh, Hummer Sports Park in Topeka. Topeka, obviously, big enough of a city and hotel facilities and all that. But I just don't know, you know, no, no one gets excited about playing state championship games at Hummer sports park with all due respect. So taking away Topeka also, I think that the viable options would be Emporia state Hutchinson community college, Fort Hayes state and uh, Dodge city as well. Is that five or does that just four? I think that was four. And I, uh, I would definitely think Hutch is going to get one. I, I would agree with that for a couple of reasons. First of all, first of all, the central location of the state is always, and not just for uh, high school, but for uh, junior college and, uh, and, and NAI potential, at, uh, uh, you know, state, state events, KCAC, regional, whatever. Uh, I think Hutchinson is just a good draw location wise. And frankly, the, the game day operations are first class. Steve Carpenter, Danny Steckline, Billy Watson, they all do such a great job of putting on yes. these uh, state caliber events. So I would think that Hutchinson would be a very strong contender. Uh, if I would have one complaint about Hutch, it's that if they have three state championship games, uh, I, I, I hopefully maybe one day they can expand that press box a little bit, maybe add an, uh, another suite onto both ends. Uh, minor complaint, but uh, if they want to host something bigger like that. I do know that they are expanding uh, the visiting seating. Okay. On the uh, what what side is that? That the eastern sideline. East side. Yeah, yeah they are going to expand the seating over there, so that's definitely going to help their cause. Uh, so I think Hutch, I, I agree, and uh, that Hutch will be a strong consideration. I also, I, I and for similar reasons, I think Emporia State will be uh, a very strong uh, candidate for location wise, and I think that Emporia would be a very big draw for six A, five A, and four A. Due to the number of schools in Kansas City on on those uh, 6A, 5A, and 4A, and very few schools out in western Kansas uh, along those lines. I know you, you got your Garden to Dodge, Liberal, Ulysses, Hayes, et cetera. You got your WAC schools, but they're used to traveling anyway. Uh, I, and I don't mean that as an insult. Uh, they, they are used to traveling. I don't think that they're going to care. So I think Emporia is going to be a strong favorite. And then um, Hutch, obviously. Uh, <laughs> you know, Hayes – uh, Fort Hayes State has long been a longtime host. Uh, it's a great stadium. Lewis Field Stadium is, is, is tremendous. But I tell you, Dodge City has really put in the work, uh, Scott. They're, they're putting a brand-new press box in at Memorial Stadium. And they've been kind of the, the, the site, uh, first uh, officially this past year, and unofficially before that for the Wild West Bowl. They kind of took a, you know the, the six-man football championship game, and, and they've, they've done well with it. And Dodge City, obviously, as a city – uh, you know, with the casino now, uh, hotel casino, it, it's become not a bad draw. And and let's and, and like you talked with with Emporia's location, so many of those Western Kansas schools play eight man and six man, so it's not a bad trip for them. Again, someone's always going to have to travel at some point, but I think that Dodge City could really be in the mix for the for uh, a site here, Scott. I if I was to guess, 
I would say, and the thing that I didn't like about Newton, Brad, the press box was terrible for us. Right. As far as right. Seeing the field. Um, I, I would say Dodge City for six and eight man. Um, and probably Hutch for one, two and three A and then Emporia for four, five and six A. I would not rule Fort Hayes out of one of those, which would probably be the one, two and three A. Um, that that would be the four I would have it down to, and probably Hutch and Emporia in there. But I, I think Hayes would still still's got a real shot at it as well. And I want to throw one wild card in here, as Scott. Maybe not for immediate, because I know there's a lot of construction going on. But uh, Cessna Stadium. I thought about that too. Only if they go turf, and I don't know if they're going to for the fact of knowing they want state track and everything there just because the heat of the turf, you know, how yes. it can be. I, I think that if they put in the, the turf, uh, absolutely. I think that would be a, a potential because they want to have all sport and they want to, they want to play soccer there. They want to have um, some football games played there. They want the track there. I, I, if they do turf, I think that would be a wild card as well. Yeah, if, if they have turf on that infield for state track, uh, Scott, people are going to melt, li- literally melt. Uh, they're going to be like, hey, where's this athlete from Axtell High School? Oh, well, he just melted. He, uh, you can see the remains of his body out there. He, he yeah. just melted. Yeah, that's what I'm – I haven't seen the official plans, um, what the surface is supposed to be, but I, I would anticipate grass. And then I, I really think when you're talking three games, I, I think that kind of <sighs> – it doesn't necessarily rule out a facility, but it, it wouldn't be in its favor. Right. I mean, if you got, you know, a, a downpour or even worse, an ice storm. Yeah. Uh, which we have seen on Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, it, it would not be fun. It, it's not fun enough. Uh, it's already not fun playing in those conditions. But you had grass in the mix and it's either a mud bowl or, or you need ice skates. Yeah. So, um that's everything that they'll be figuring out for uh, football. Not the only sport, uh, soccer, one near and dear to your heart. All championship finals will now be at one site. The higher seeds are still going to host your quarters and semis, but every soccer championship will be at one site. And is there any doubt that will be at Stryker? I'll say Stryker will be a very strong uh, favorite. Um, I'm going to throw another wild card in here, Scott. Uh, again, I, I would selfishly, I would love to see it at Children's Mercy Park, but as we've already alluded to, uh, too many championship games, and I'm not sure Sporting Kansas City will want, especially with the potential for them having playoff games around that time, are going to want their field ripped to shreds. Um, Rock Chalk Park in Lawrence, where the University of Kansas women's soccer team plays. Uh, Division One facility has turf. Um, I, I think that could be a wild card there. It certainly could, you know, and it always will be. That's why um, JUCO and NAIA national championships are going to be at Stryker. The one thing they've got in their back pocket is that indoor facility. The, the, the indoor facility and, you know, frankly, uh, the biggest city in Kansas, easy, you know, once again, easy to get to. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess the one thing that they would have to figure out is uh, a, a, a potential bottleneck of uh of events so uh that that's one thing that but yeah i i think striker would be the heavy favorite but 
a part of me would love to see, you know, uh, you know, my son will be a senior this year. And of course, uh, at Bueller, and I would love to see him play in the state tournament. And if they do, I think it would be at Stryker where Bueller would have a considerable home field advantage, I would think. But, uh, boy, how how cool would it be for, uh, those, uh, those kids, boys and girls, uh, girls in the spring, boys in the fall to play at a division one facility. So, but yeah, I would agree. Stryker would be a pretty heavy favorite for that. Uh, baseball tweaked a little bit. This is at the regional round. Um, and I think this is a lot due to one thing that I've been on my soapbox about the, the pitch count rules for the small schools. Uh, they're going to be playing the regionals on either a Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. That's the opening rounds. The semis and finals will not be until the following Monday or Wednesday, which would enable you to have your full complement of pitchers for the semifinals and finals. Um, I wish we could do something at the state level, especially for those small schools. So your number ones could be available for the championship game. I I don't have a a solution for that unless we tweak the pitch count rules later in the year. But I think I like it for the regionals. So you can, again, I think maybe get your, your best arms available for those later rounds. Yeah, I think sometimes we see maybe a, a team that's seated sixth or something like that. Uh, let's face it, most baseball teams have have that guy. They have a they have a genuine ace who, on the, his best day, can probably shut anybody down. Uh, you know, a team that goes six and fourteen. Okay, that kid went. You know, you know, five five and three in his starts with a two point one zero ERA. You know, he just didn't get much run support, but. Uh, after that, that's that's why they were six and fourteen because they had no other pitching. But yeah, th- this this will enable some of those lower seeds, I think, maybe to compete a little bit more. Yeah, so I, I like that change. They also alluded to uh, volleyball and basketball were discussed but tabled for a later meeting. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought that basketball, and I thought it was supposed to be this previous season. Weren't we supposed to be going to some type of a regional type uh, pod system for the 3A on down to try to eliminate some of these uh, loaded sub-states like we typically always get? Am I incorrect in in that thinking? Well, that was my understanding that this was supposed to be the first year it happened. I don't know if it was tabled or what, so – but – I think that what what you're looking at with uh, that is you always got a couple holdouts, right? Uh, Southeastern Kansas, I think, is kind of one of the ones where they're they're afraid that they won't make it back to state because they're maybe not as strong in some areas, which I always kind of found weird because Southeastern Kansas is so loaded at baseball and softball that I would say, well, the trade-off is then maybe you get two teams to state in those sports. So too narrow-minded, uh, yeah, yeah. So I. I, I, I don't know if that's what's being tabled. I, I think one thing for a basketball that is starting to be discussed more is the shot clock. Yeah, I, I think it's coming. Um, course, lots of issues. I mean, the technology to put them in and then somebody uh, not inept to be there to run the shot clock properly for the games challenges and I, I don't know where you're going to set it i mean i think you're going to have somewhere in the neighborhood of a probably a 40 i'm just throwing a number out there somewhere in the neighborhood of a little bit longer shot clock but i i do think it's coming i i think that's not a done deal but i think it's going to happen 
Yeah, and I think that what you might end up seeing, I think Nebraska is doing this actually, Scott, where they're actually phasing it in, starting with the bigger classes and then, like, you know, first year it's, it's, it's the biggest class and the next year the second biggest class adds. And I think you probably will end up seeing that in Kansas that will allow those smaller schools conceivably, if they would do it one classification per year, uh, you would see conceivably then six some of those smaller schools. And I know then the question becomes, well, what happens when a 6A plays a, you know, a 5A or a 5A plays a 4A, 4A plays 3A, and they don't quite have the shot clock? Yet? Well, then you just don't play with the shot clock for, for that particular game. I think that teams would be easier, although it could be the opposite then as well, where maybe a 3A team doesn't have a shot clock. They're playing a 5A team who does. But you know what? It, it's coming anyway. So I, I think that that would be the only hiccup. Of, uh, that, that is how Nebraska, I think, is doing it. And that would be, that would be one way, and I I think you're going to have. I don't think you just spring this on everybody all at once. Um, I, I do think that Kansas will figure out a way to um, slowly but surely get that implemented. And yes, I'm on the record. We need it, and definitely there's some games. It's just like you have to have it, and I think it is on its way. So those are some of the, the things that just came out on Keisha, and we'll get on to our major topic of the evening, the private versus public school debate, which seems to be gaining more and more traction. Just a little bit of the background, the the theory or whatever people will say that's out there is that the private schools have a dis, or the public schools are at a disadvantage to the private schools because of things that are allowed by Keisha to go on, such as, quote, unquote, um, recruiting out-of-district kids, out-of-state kids, manipulating, restricting enrollment to go to a higher or a lower class, what looks like to your advantage. And, of course, the conception is they win an inordinate amount of state championships. Well, Brad, the numbers do back that up. Um, these aren't exact numbers, but they're really close. It's approximately 8% of all the institutions in Kansas are private schools, high schools we're talking, and they win, have won, I don't know how many years was compiled, but this is quite a few. They win nearly 40% of all state championships, and that that is definitely slanted and there has been talk of a multiplier and you need a advanced degree. I don't even know if your master's degree could decipher all of the things that go into this multiplier. It's how many championships you've won in the past five years in these sports. And then it goes to this and you take it times this. It's a, it's a complicated, but basically what it would do if you're winning an inordinate amount of titles, it would bump you up a classification. So that's kind of the background on it. I know you've got some more um, particular information. I am all for bumping a lot of these schools. We all know the ones we're talking about. We're talking about the Bishop Miages, the uh, smaller classes. We'd be talking about Pittsburgh Colgan, um, recent memory, Wichita Collegiate would be another one. Uh, your your St. Thomas Aquinas, those type of schools that we're talking about um, in particular that always seem to be grabbing the headlines of winning yet another state title. So I know you've got some more specific information on this. Well, I think, uh, I think with all this, I, I, I like to think anyway, that I have a, um, 
a unique perspective on this because I did go to Bishop Meage High School. I, I actually attended private schools the first uh, for my entire, uh, you know, elementary and high school. So I think uh, I've got a pretty unique perspective on this because all my kids have gone to public schools. Uh, my oldest, Laurel, went to Hutch, and then uh, Josie went to Hutch, and then my youngest, Landon's at Bueller. And um, so I, I, I like to think I've got a pretty good perspective on this. And I say this as someone who still, you know, has a lot of pride in my high school. And, uh, you know, I like to see me age win state titles. Uh, it's not right, Scott. I mean, there's no other way to say it. They, it, 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 it but it's also not me age's fault that they're so dominant in 4A. Because what you've got, when I was in high school, me age was 5A. And me, and me age was actually 5A until, what, maybe 10 years ago that they dropped to 4A then? Maybe yeah. a little bit more than 10, 12 years, maybe. At so, most, I think, yeah. So, but, you know, Miege's enrollment really, I don't think, has gone up or down that much in my time. It, it probably, it's probably gone down a little bit because you had St. James Academy uh, open up and then uh, St. Michael the Archangel out in Lee Summit uh, probably didn't take away too much of Miege's uh, population, but it does uh, just gives, uh, you know, people another Catholic option there in the Kansas city area. So Scott, let me ask you this. Do you, do you know who the last foray or foray division one? There was a, there was a very brief time of like four years where foray was split into two, into two divisions. So we're talking foray and foray division one. Do you know who the last football team to win a, a, a last public football team to win a state championship in class foray or foray division one in football? In football, who who is the last public school to win four A or four A Division One? Oh goodness! Um, would it have been Andale? Not a bad guess because they did win, I think, a couple, at least one four A Division Two championships. Okay. And Andale, I think, one year lost to Miege in the four A championship game. Uh, uh, Scott, it was Be- it was Bueller. Was it Bueller? Okay, I had thought about Bueller, but I I didn't go back. Far enough. <laughs> Scott, that was 2013. Yeah. Uh, Randy Dryling was still at Hutch. <laughs> I mean, that's that's how long it's been since uh, and, and Miege has won all but two in that time. And the two years that Miege didn't win it, St. James Academy won it. Uh, I do think that there were a couple close games uh, mixed in there, Scott. I want to say, oh, gosh, St. James' second state title was a really close game with somebody. I know Arc City made it one year and actually didn't do too bad with a losing record in that game. Um, but I, uh, another sport uh, is soccer. Uh, Miege has won every single boys state championship since 2007 or 2016. And as a matter of fact, if you look at since 2016, uh, Miege has won, like I said, all of them, 5A, St. James, Blue Valley Southwest has won a couple. St. Thomas Aquinas has won. And then uh, May South won this past year. So a little bit better on the boys' side, but on the girls' side, it is just very lopsided with uh, Miege and Aquinas. They won 5A and 4A this year. They won 5A and 4A in 22. They won 5A and 4A in 21. They won uh, 19. St. James won it. Uh, no state in 20 due to COVID. But uh, yeah. e- e- even though – and we can talk a little bit more about this later – I'm not a fan of, of of painting all private schools with a broad brush. So we 
we can talk about the uh, the proposals and all that. And I think that the one that passed Keisha and then was tabled by the state legislature was a pretty good one. And I'm not naive. And, and, and Scott, frankly, the most adamant Miege fans, the, the biggest Miege fans out there, will agree that, you know what, we probably shouldn't be for it. But it's also, and I can't emphasize this, it's also not Miege's fault. They're, they're just a product of the system. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, and like you said, it's not all private schools. It, it's the, I guess, for lack of a better term, the gray area in which they have operated and exploited at some of the schools, not all of them, of the quote unquote recruiting. Um, you know, these all of a sudden these out of state five star athletes show up. Um, out all these out of district kids. Now I understand that they have relaxed that to where public schools now have, I don't want to call it completely open, but they can bring in uh, out of district kids as well. But we all know what's going on. Um, and in one particular instance, and I will not mention the name of the school, um, there was a team private school that had won in the previous season, a state baseball championship looked at the landscape for the next year, restricted the amount of incoming freshmen for the next year so they would drop down a classification. And guess what? They won another state baseball title. Um, you know, the, the private, the public schools don't do that. They can't do that. They're playing for the most part with the kids that grow up in that area, especially the small schools, the kids that have probably been born and raised in in your, your pretty prairies, your little rivers, your mound ridges. Um, and they, they play with the deck that's dealt them. They don't stack the deck. And I think that's where my problem has always been with the private versus public schools. Some people say, well, make their own division. Well, that's you can't have Central Christian out of Hutchison playing Bishop Meage. I mean, it's, it's just not – we don't have enough – private schools to make up, you know, even two divisions with only, I think there's 20, 24 now. There used to be a few more. Um, you can't do that either. So there has to be an answer to level the playing field. I have no problem with a private school winning state championships. I have a problem with them with winning an overwhelming number of them compared to the fraction that they are of the total amount of schools. Well, it's not just winning uh, titles, Scott. I, I, I wish I had access to this report that Keisha did uh, where they also had a disproportionate amount of state tournament appearances. Yes. Where, you know, they may not be winning titles, but, you know, they're still, they're still you know, two or three private schools at state basketball or state softball or something like that. And you kind of mentioned something about uh, uh, out-of-state players and all that. Uh, I do recall, recall this uh, incident, and this happened. Instantly, Miege did not win the state baseball championship. I think it was 2019, uh, 18, I'm sorry. It was 2018, where Arc City actually won the state championship and actually clobbered Miege 11-1 in the championship game. But Miege had a ringer pitching for them. And they beat Beeler in the first round 8-2. to two, And I'm pretty sure this kid pitched in that game. And he was from, he was from Liberty, Missouri. Now, if you're not familiar with the Kansas City metropolitan area, uh, Liberty's up by the airport, which is absolutely nowhere even remotely close to Bishop Meage High School. Uh, that kid probably was on the road. If, if they started school at 8 o'clock, he, he was probably on the road 
probably no later than 7. And when he factor in downtown traffic, uh, maybe even 6.45 to make sure he got there in time. Um, but, yeah, I like what you said about painting, you know, a private school with a broad brush. Um, you know, I've seen people say, well, Texas does it this way. Well, you know, the, the Dallas Metroplex has more people in it than the entire state of Kansas does. <laughs> and that doesn't even factor in Houston or San Antonio or, you know, Austin's got a million people living there too so that, that that's bigger than any state uh, city in kansas so we, we can't compare it to 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 what texas does or what you know california might do or you know florida or new york or something like that you just can't do it so i think so what the proposal what they have and it, it, you do have to be something of, of a mathematician as you pointed out scott but so basically what it is I, and i got the the proposal right here in front of me so Private schools would take their enrollment, and that, that, that's it. So you start out with taking their enrollment. And then if you're located in a 6A or 5A population area, so um, for, for schools like Central Christian, and, and I, I, that, which actually brings up an interesting point, would Central Christian be in the Hutchinson District or with Bueller? Because Central Christian is actually located in the Bueller District. Hmm. I'm going to guess that they would probably be with the Bueller district then. I, probably so, yes. So a school's multiplier in, incre- would, would uh, increase if they're in a 6A or 5A population area by 0.30, 4A or 3A by 0.15, and no addition if they're 2A and 1A. So, it, it, so yeah, the, the, it, it would go up then. And so everybody, every private school would get the multiplier 3A and up. So then if your private school has won 10 or more championships across all sports during any five-year period, you get another 0.30 attached to your multiplier. So this would inevitably be a Miege or probably like a Cape and Mount Carmel because they're so good at golf or uh, help me out. Give me another one. Uh, a Colgan or something like that, or schools of five to nine, uh, five to nine state championships would have 0.15 added. So basically, if a private school would then win at least five state championships, they would have another multiplier attached to them. So the success, so the success factor is, uh, it says here it's the first criteria, and the success factor does not get triggered. If it does not get triggered, then geography does not get triggered. So actually for, for schools like Central Christian, they would actually would not get any kind of multiplier at all unless they would win multiple state championships. So even though that they would be in a 4A or in Trinity's case, a, a 5A, 6A area, they actually would not get a multiplier in any capacity. So the, the first multiplier is actually what they have on the, on the table right now, Scott, is success. So if you're not very good at sports, you don't get a multiplier if you're a private school. But if you are good at sports, then those multipliers start adding up pretty quickly. And there's also the uh, like some kind of a social economic factor where private schools with less than 20 percent of enrolled students receiving free or reduced lunches would have a multiplier of 0.15. And with at least 20 with at least 20 percent, they would have no uh, multiplier at all. So uh, I would guess that someone like a, a Miege or a Carol would potentially have that extra multiplier. So a, a private school could get up to, let's see if I can do math quick like here, Scott, up to 0.75 multiplied to their enrollment. So that not quite double, but for a school that really dominates and is a very well-off school in a big city, 
you know, a, a Miege or a Carol, uh, you could see them going. You could see a Carol going to six A. You could see Miege going to five A. Aquinas to five A. Uh, you could see a, a Collegiate going to potentially four A. Uh, Colgan to three A. So this could really alter the landscape of high school athletics uh, in Kansas, Scott. And um, you know, the, there there's no system that's going to make everybody happy, right? someone is always going to be upset, but I think that this is about as fair as it gets. It, it does. I, I like it. I, I just, I don't know why, you know, it was tabled or whatever. I understood it had something to do. It's got to go through the state legislature. Um, <laughs> and we all know how, how that works when you get politics involved into it. Um, I mean, you made one of the best examples I can think of was right where I was for baseball. Yeah. One and great band. You, do you know how, what appearance this was all time for Pittsburgh Colgan? I want to guess somewhere in the mid thirties. Fifty. Oh wow! And it was their twenty-first title. Man, they're probably winning titles back when there's only two classifications. And I believe this is the same coach that's won all those titles. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. I mean. Yeah, and you you were there, so you know this as well as anybody, Scott. I, well, first I, of all, first of all, that wasn't an upset in any capacity. Second of all, I think you can make the argument that Little River was the underdog. I believe they were, and when we saw that bracket come out, it's like, oh, poor Little River. I mean, the eight seed that kids come on. I mean, we knew they weren't an eight seed and we knew they were probably the favorite, which they were. And, and they won the whole thing fairly handily Poor poor little river, poor Marion, uh, ah, Marion just played a great tournament and just, you know, they couldn't stay with them, but they, yeah, that that's, that's what you're talking about. And yes, we see dynasties. We saw what, you know, Smith center football, um, what Andale football is currently doing, what little river girls basketball, um, Central Plains girls basketball. Yes, there are public school dynasties, but we're not talking across multiple sports here with these schools where they're winning. You know, they might win one, maybe a second state title in a really good year. They're not winning multiple state titles year after year after year. And I think that's what we're trying to get away get away from and and again i hope and implore the legislature to to move and act on this so we can we can get this competitive balance a a little better yeah when it was tabled so there's actually kind of an obscure law in kansas scott where uh keisha cannot okay so they're obviously in charge of the classifications they've got their system set up but in order to make a change to, the, to uh, adding a multiplier, so how they do classifications, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, how they do classifications right now is strictly by enrollment, right? And that's been on the, the table <coughs> since what? For, probably forever. Now, Keisha doesn't need the state's permission to do more classes or to split 4A or to split 1A. They don't need that, that permission. But if they do want to make changes to how they do enrollments, and classifications, there's actually a law that says that they have to get permission from the state from the state legislature to do that. So that's what they're trying to do is trying to say, hey, can, can we just like essentially let us do this the way we want to? But the thing is, Scott, is that even I think it was the Paola AD who's been one of the biggest um, 
proponents for a multiplier because, you know, for a school, rural area, play Miege a lot. They really don't have much of a chance. Even he admitted that it was probably not worded great this past year, that they have to go back, work on the wording. And here's something else, Scott, that we I think we have to consider with all this when we add a legislature. Yeah, you know, adding politics is, is, is a tough thing and all that. But I think that this is, this is twofold, actually, Scott. And why I'm afraid this could take a little bit longer than what we all hope. First of all, not everybody who is a state representative or a state senator is a sports fan. They're just not. Correct. They they might look at this and say, well, what's the what's the fuss about? I, I don't we're actually spending time talking about high schools. It's important to us, Scott, but it's not important to everybody. We have to keep that in mind. There's probably some people in Topeka who probably don't see what the fuss is. Here's something else to consider, Scott. How many of those state representatives and senators either have kids or had kids go to private schools? Yeah, that's a definite consideration because it's probably it may be surprise you more than you think. Right. And so they may think, well, shoot, I don't want to hurt my kids. alma mater like this. So uh, just just a couple kind of probably probably minor variables but variables that could force us to drag out a little bit. Yeah, and that, that's the un- unfortunate part for um, the kids in these public schools that, you know, have a have a landmark season and then they run up like, like a payola runs up against a miage and it's just like, well, we had a good season. You know, they just they know in some cases there's just so little hope um, that they're only going to be able to go so far, no matter how good of a team they had. And I think that's that's not high school what we want high school sports to be. When you think of four A high school, Scott, what what four A high school public uh, schools? I should say what four A public high school probably has more state trophies, first, second, and third, than anybody else in this in, in the class. Maybe McPherson. I would agree with that. Can you imagine how many more that they would have? Maybe a first instead of a second, a second for- instead of a third, a third instead of nothing, if it hadn't been for Miege all these years? Yeah. I mean, poor Chris Adrian, the soccer coach, he might have like three state championships in his back pocket, maybe more if it wasn't for Miege. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's not just that. I mean, Kirk Kinnaman's lost a couple championship games to, to, uh, to Miege. Uh, Chris Strathman, I think they just lost to Miege this past year. Uh, I'm pretty sure SU Taylor Robertson probably lost to her senior year. So, gosh, I mean, as great as McPherson is, as many titles as they want, I can't help but think how, how many more they might actually have. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, it's finally at least moving forward. We just hope it doesn't, you know, ball down. And, and we're still talking about this three or four years from now. And I, I, I don't I don't think we will. Um but you never know. Like you say, you get it in. The, it could be tabled at the legislature for a later, a later session. And then I think once the ball does finally get through that portion, I, I think we'll see it happen um, pretty quickly. And and again, this isn't a this isn't our debate on you know we hate private schools. We you know we want to penalize them. I, I just want it to be a level playing field that's what i want and if two two teams two schools that are following the rules meet up on a level playing field then 
then then I can take the result. I just right now I, it it just it really sticks in my craw more and more each year. We see when you know it's not quite that way, and that that's what we're trying to get to. Well, we're trying to level the playing field without penalizing yes the private the the, the Central Christians, the the Trinity Catholics, the Beloit St. John's, the oh gosh, there's got to be the uh, Wichita Independence. I mean, I know Independence had some success in sports like baseball and swimming through the years, but uh, you know, not every private school is this uh, Illyria Christian. I mean, we we've been there plenty of times. I mean, my goodness, I, I can't count on on my right hand how many schools treat you better than Illyria Christian treats you. I mean, they they treat you like you're you're a celebrity when the media walks in, or even when I referee. I mean, they they there's always fans. Hey, thanks for coming out and refing. I mean. Uh, I can't say enough about some of these private schools and I, you know, and those are the ones, the ones that aren't dominant. The, we don't, we don't want them punished. Certainly. Yeah. We, I, we, you and I both love central Christian, Lyria Christian um, in this area. They, they do, they treat us, treat us extremely well. And that's, that's the last thing we want. And in, in the way the multiplier works, you know, I, I mean, would I, would I love to see central Christian win multiple, state titles and the, you know, even one state title. Absolutely. Um, I don't think that the multiplier is going to affect those schools that win an occasional state championship. I just think it will help them, uh, especially at the little bit higher. I think this is more for the higher levels, although you got Colgan in there. There's a few of those smaller ones, um, but I just think it'll help them have that opportunity. And that, that's what I want. Yeah, and, and here's another interesting thing, Scott. I I I, I forgot about this earlier. I, I meant to bring this up earlier, and then I forgot. Uh, Cape Mount Carmel's AD actually made an interesting point. I don't want to say it's a good point, bad point, just an interesting point. He essentially said that there that they would get a multiplier simply because they're really really good at golf. That they really don't win many state championships outside golf. And I think about a school like Salina Sacred Heart, uh, which has not been very good at football lately. I think they're pretty bad at girls basketball lately. Uh, maybe, may, maybe good at boys basketball, but boy, they are dominant at boys golf. I mean, they, 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 I mean, there's, there's been some years where I think sacred hearts uh, team has been maybe the best team in Kansas and boy, if they go on a run and win five or six state championships, uh, boom, they get, they, they get themselves multiplier. So, it, that, that, that was just an interesting dynamic when the Cape and Mount Carmel AD said that, that essentially that they don't actually win a ton of state championships outside of golf. And because they're so good at golf, now some of those other sports that, they, you know, that they, they, they're going to get a multiplier, potentially go to six days. So uh, I, I hear what he's saying, but at the same time, you know, the, we, it, something has to happen. And I think that the proposal that they have is probably right now the best option. I do as well, and, and we will certainly track it um, and see where we go from here, which hopefully moves forward and we can get it uh, in the books and, and get it in the work, and then, then we can see. I mean, if it's failing miserably one way or the other after a few years, then, of course, um, it can be reviewed, but I, I think it is certainly uh, the best option that we have had, so that's... Uh, we're going to do this a couple of different times this summer. We'll pick out some bigger topics that we'll spend our majority of time on. 
Um, just a couple other little little things that we'll look at tonight. I'll give uh, Brad a little trivia here. Nice. Baseball, professional baseball. And you probably know the answer, but the only player in Major League Baseball history to win a batting title in three different decades. Well, I can even give you the years, 1976, 1980, 1990. There you are. And the player is? George Brett. George Brett, again, I, I will say, I think often overlooked as one of the greats of all time. I mean, you think about it, I could see if it was, uh, you know, you could say if it was 79, 85, and 90, but you look at the span, you know, 14 years between his first and his last and 10 years I think he was 30, was he 35 years old when he won it in 90, somewhere in that neighborhood? That sounds about right, yeah. Um, impressive. Um, and I, I haven't updated this. At one time, he was only one of three players to have 3,000 hits, 300 homers, and 200 career stolen bases, with the other two being Willie Mays and Hank Aaron. Um, there may be other players that have joined that, but, I mean, some of what he did – um, the closest in recent memory at all to threaten hitting over 400 in a season. I just think sometimes he's overlooked as truly, I mean, he's in the hall of fame where he d belongs, but I think he's overlooked as potentially one of, one of the best to ever do it. Yeah. George was just, uh, I mean, it, it was just part, part of what you're saying about uh, being overlooked probably has to do with that. He did have an injury riddled career. Uh, very rarely did he play probably 140 games in a season. As a matter of fact, I'm looking at baseball reference right now. Um, I mean, he never played 162 games. As a matter of fact, he went over 150 just, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six times in 21 years did he play at least 150 games. So he did suffer uh, some injuries throughout his career, but two seasons in particular. Uh, 1980, when he was the MVP, he played in just 117 games. And he had 118 RBIs. He had more RBIs than games played. That mm. is just an astounding stat. He batted 390 that year, had an on-base percentage of 454. And if I'm not mistaken, Scott, wasn't George like in late May batting a, like a, a pedestrian 250 in 1980? Oh, it was something like that. He was struggling. And then he just went on a tear over. Oh, something like 60 games or so where he batted somewhere around the neighborhood, like 450, 460. I think his average peaked at 406, 407 or something like that in, in uh, early to mid-August. And uh, George has been honest about what happened. He said he started thinking about it. You know, he started thinking, I, I need to hit 400. So, uh, unfortunately, it didn't quite happen. But 85 was another year. Finished second in the MVP behind Don Mattingly, who, of course, played for New York. But I'm not, that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, George had a career high that year in home runs with 30. He had 112 RBIs, which were the second most of his career. He batted 335, which I think was second to, to Mattingly. He won a Silver Slugger Award, which was meant he was the highest batting average for third baseman. He uh, won a gold glove that year. I think that was the only gold glove of his career. And, of course, he won a World Series, led the league in uh, intentional walks. And let's see if I can find his strikeout to walk, because that was probably ridiculous that year. 103 walks, a career high in 1985, to 49 strikeouts. 
and he did not win MVP. Yeah, enough said on who did. <laughs> uh, yeah, and how many home runs would he have hit in a ballpark other than Royal Stadium? Yeah, it just wasn't built for home runs. I mean, he ended up with um, a remarkable 665 doubles, but he also hit uh, 137 triples. He led the league in triples three times, Scott. Well, you talk the 200 stolen bases, you look and you think, George Brett? But, yeah, he, he was such a student of the game. He could read pitchers so well and could steal that way. Um, again, he'll always be Mr. Royal. I mean, there's no doubt about it, but uh, I saw that pop up and um, just just loved watching him play. Still, I think one of my all-time, if not my all-time favorite homer was against the Yankees in Yankee Stadium with the two runners on and the first pitch that Goose Gossage out of the bullpen gives him is is a fastball that's probably between the belt and the letters. It was that high, and he turns on that thing and plants it out in the right center field seats. That's still one of my all-time favorite home runs. Yeah, yeah, my dad would agree with that, and George has actually said that he intentionally took his time running around the bases because he knew, <laughs> he knew the game was over, but more than that, he wanted to listen to the quietness of Yankee Stadium. He wanted to hear the sound of silence, did he? Yep. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that popped up. Another great one that popped up, Brad, was uh, on one of my all-time favorite pitchers, Nolan Ryan. We, we talked about him a little bit. Here's a, a stat that's astounding. In his career, because he wasn't that far above his total win-loss record, um, above 500. But he had 198 what they consider what were called non-win quality starts. Out of that 198 considered quality starts that he didn't win, he had a record of 0 and 107. Care to guess what his ERA was and his strikeouts per nine inning in those games were? (laughs) Well, his ERA had been south of three. Strikeouts per nine innings, I'm going to say 11. Um, 2.27 was the ERA, 9.77 strikeouts per nine innings. Wow. And, and, and 198 no decisions and 100, zero and 107. And you look at that ERA, 2.27. That tells you the run support that the guy was getting during some of those. And then this other one that came up on Nolan Ryan, There was a game back in June of 74 when he was uh, pitching with the Angels. A game that went extra innings. It actually went 15 innings. Nolan Ryan pitched 13 of those innings. (laughs) 235 pitches. He struck out 19 and walked 10. Got, again, a no decision against Boston. The Angels went on to win 4-3 in 15 innings. But do you want to know the most amazing stat from that game? Yes. The pitcher for Boston's name was Luis Tiant. He went 14 and a third. <laughs> uh, I, I remember, I think it was 1983, my uh, Aunt Jan and Uncle Randy took me and my, uh, my cousin to a uh, Royals game. Tom Seaver pitched that day, mm. and he pitched 10 innings. And I just remember being fascinated. Wow, wow, he pitched 10 innings. But it was so, it was more common back then to see that. Uh, game went, I think, uh, 16 innings. Uh, so Seaver didn't pitch that deep. But it, it was just, gosh, I mean, the, the game has changed so much. 
um, on and off the field, unfortunately. But um, that's just that, that's just absolutely remarkable. Um, I remember when Jack Morris pitched ten innings in the was that the playoffs of the World Series that one year back when he pitched with the Tigers. That that was uh, Game Seven with the the Twins, wasn't it? Was that with the Twins? I, I think mean, it was. Everybody was just like, oh my, you know, oh my gosh, he's going to pitch a tenth inning. Um, but you couldn't take him out. I mean, he was he was still so dominant, and you just don't see it. And I, I understand the the, the 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 total innings pitched and everything, the research that's out there on the arms and everything. But boy, and and if we we don't have time tonight, but we should go back on Bob Gibson. I mean, the amount of complete games he would have in a season, um, a lot of pitchers won't have in a career. I mean, he, he'd have, he'd be in the twenties in complete games out of his starts during a season. I mean, it's just the, the pitchers are certainly handled differently today than, than they were back then. When you pitch back then, um, you just pitched, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll save our pathetic Kansas city Royals discussion for, um, another day. They're still, two games ahead of Oakland for the worst record in the league at this point, but we'll, <laughs> we'll save the Royals for a, another day. Uh, boy, Brad, I am really, really looking forward to October 15th on the NFL schedule this year. Can you take a wild guess at why? Well, let's see. Chiefs play the Dolphins? No. My favorite throwback uniforms of all time are making their return oh is that the uh would that be the tampa bay buccaneers the cream sickles are back <laughs> you know i always like when they do stuff like that um i think some of those really old ones that like the bears and steelers would wear were ugly but i, I didn't yeah. like when the chiefs would wear the uh, the houston texans jerseys uh or the, the i'm sorry the dallas texans uh because uh, they're still very similar i think about the only thing different was the helmet um <laughs> The old Patriots, I love. Yeah, the, yeah. Um, even the old Broncos uniforms, the Orange Crush uniforms are yeah. pretty cool. I, I love it when the team and I, 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 I know they were pretty much futile uh, most of, if not all of the seasons. There was one year there were Doug Williams and the Cream Sickles that they made the playoffs. I, I, I know that that was a, a time where Tampa Bay was mostly awful, but I, I just loved it. I loved the swashbuckler buccaneer on the side of the helmet and the cream sickle top I, I just thought it was wonderful i saw that you know and in a lot of teams you're going to see a lot of throwbacks the uh, chargers in those uh powder blue or whatever love the powder blues yes for the chargers there's just some great throw i'm glad to see um that the franchises are going to be um i'm doing this and we we, we talked about um dynasties and stuff and uh at the high school level brad i think one i don't know how quiet it's been but uh what about the ou softball team brad three peat this year as national champions and i was absolutely blown away by um the three young women and their coach at their press conference um the christian witness that those young ladies, they had a big stage. And I tell you, they, they, they put it right out there how important that was to them and their team and their coach and, and a huge reason um, why they play so free because they know that it's, it's just a game. There's so much more 
in life. I, I thought I found it so refreshing to see that. And um, you, you could think of teams that have won multiple titles in a row, how you can almost come off as arrogant. And they were the exact opposite. I, I thought those those young women were a tremendous example to, to everybody out there. Didn't one of those uh, girls transfer to Nebraska? Yes, the pitcher, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they what Oklahoma's got going on? Uh, it's turning into a uh, UConn women's basketball kind of dynasty. And what's even better is you see that ballpark sold out, not just for the Oklahoma games, but pretty, pretty much all the games. I mean, whether it's you know UCLA against Oklahoma State or you know w- whatever. I mean, it's it's become an event. And I know some people have said that. Um, Oh, it's kind of an unfair advantage. Uh, you know what? I mean, I think you lose some of its charm right now if you move the Women's College World Series away from Oklahoma City. Uh, are you going to have sold-out parks for everybody if you move it out to L.A. or Phoenix or Tallahassee? I mean, I, I don't know, man. Yeah. I, I, boy, I tell you, it's, it's hard when you're – when you're having such success in a, in an arena to move it anywhere else, I mean, ask the people what happened to the, the Juco tournament when they tried moving it from Hutch years and years back, it was a disaster and it got moved immediately back to Hutch and has been there ever since. Um, I don't know that you should fool with it. Um, I just think it's next, next woman up in this case. Um, Somebody get out there, get better and beat them. Yeah. Yeah, that's essentially what uh, – that's kind of how I thought about Gina Oriema's teams and Pat Summit before that. If, you know, if you don't like it, just just beat them. Yeah, put, together a, put together a program and beat them. It's not their responsibility to come back to the pack. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's yours. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not Andy Reid's job to make the Chiefs more competitive with the rest of the division. they got to raise their game to, to beat the Chiefs. Yeah, because that makes everybody better. Um yeah, it's definitely, but yeah, it was just so, I, I've watched that press conference more than once and it was just, I was so impressed. I thought we would um, definitely uh, bring that up this evening. Well, that was the rest of the little side topics we had tonight and you kind of alluded to one. We'll, we'll have a, we'll have a discussion this summer on the state of college sports with the transfer portal um and all of that that's going on the nil deals how that's affected and where we think that's going to go that'll be a that'll be a fun discussion as well but we'll move on for tonight to your final thoughts well scott it's become a pretty good time in america for sports and by that i mean and you know i'm a big soccer guy but listen to this lineup of major events coming to the united states coming up 2024, they'll be hosting Copa America, which it's it's Copa America is usually the South American championship. And this is kind of like the first test to host the 2026 World Cup. So essentially you're going to have 10 teams from South America against and six teams from North Central and the Caribbean joining them. So you're going to have, you know, Brazil and Argentina and Uruguay, along with Mexico and the United States playing together. And, you know, a pretty big it's, it's going to be a pretty big deal. But then in 2025, they, uh, they announced that uh, for the first time ever, they're going to have an expanded club World Cup for soccer. And that's going to be played in the United States, a 32 team event. So you're going to have the best club teams across the planet, the Manchester Cities, uh, 
Liverpool, Bayern Munich from Germany. Uh, North America is going to get four teams. The Seattle Sounders have already qualified. Uh, and, you know, Kansas City will likely be a host team or a, a host city for this event. So you got two pretty big soccer events right there in 24 and 25. And, of course, the World Cup in 26 uh, is coming to uh, the United States and Kansas City's hosting. And I saw a report today that Lawrence is expecting to host at least, at least one team when they come to the World Cup. So good for Lawrence that they will be, uh, you know, having a team up there. But 2027 could be they're they're actually host uh, uh, bidding on it. The Women's World Cup could be coming to the United States in 2027. They are launching a, a joint bid with Mexico. Did I mention that the Olympics are in 2028 in Los Angeles? <laughs> yeah. And I believe Salt Lake City is is bidding on the 2030 Winter Olympics. Mm. This, I, I mean, you know, Russia had the, what, they had the 16 Winter Olympics and the 18 uh, World Cup. I mean, it is just remarkable seeing these high-profile events. And that that right there, you're going to have three in a row with Copa America and then uh, the Club World Cup, then the World Cup, and, of course, the L.A. Games in 28. And then if you get the United States hosting the 2027 Women's World Cup along with Mexico, uh, that that, that is a major worldwide event in the United States every year for, what, four years? And potentially five out of six at the Salt Lake City gets the 2030 Winter Olympics. So uh, I tell you, Scott, I've, I've been to a Men's World Cup. I've been to a Women's World Cup. Uh, I've already kicked that off my bucket list. I have not kicked the Olympics off yet. So um, I definitely have every intention of trying to get out to L.A. for 2028. Uh, hopefully the smog won't be too bad and public transit will be okay. But um, I'd say it's it, 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 it's it's a great time right now because uh, you, you just very few countries get this opportunity. And, uh, and the fact that Kansas City will be hosting so many of these events uh, just has me excited. Absolutely. And I'm pretty excited on the local level, um, speaking of soccer, that, you know, Wichita will be hosting um, two national championship soccer tournaments um, this fall. And I have the chance to be potentially involved with both of them on a broadcasting side, um, NJC Division One men's and women's uh, mid-November will be at Stryker. And then in late November, NAIA National Men's Soccer will be there. So Wichita hosting um, the both of those at Stryker, the NAI wrestling championships are hosted there in Wichita out at Hartman. Um, so on a smaller level, we're, we're seeing um, the soccer events coming to, to Wichita. And as you rattled off those that are coming, um, coming to the United States, it is soccer is a, a worldwide sport. And I think all this is going to garner more attention to the sport and help it grow worldwide. And I, I, I there's no downside to that. Uh, grow worldwide and heck grow in Kansas. I mean, um, there's not that many high, you know, most six, a five, a and four a high schools have it. And, um, you know, Nickerson's three, a, they have girls soccer and, you know, who knows what's, what's going to happen with that. It's just, uh, just an exciting time. I think it really is. And for, uh, my final thoughts, actually gonna go back to the softball arena here. Um, there was a softball game played during, I believe this was the regular season. I don't know if you saw this between uh, Thomas Moore College and Cumberland College. Uh, 
there was a. Is that the girl who fell down between first and second? This is the one, and it, it was a. I believe it was a. Come, I don't know. Uh, the game was a three-run lead, and uh, I'm going to forget who was in the lead. Um, two two outs in the, in the final inning, and a gal comes up and hits a walk-off grand slam. Well, between first and second base, she feels her hamstring pop twice, and she just goes down in a heap between first and second base. Well, according to the rules, if she is not able to touch each of the bases, including home base, that home run will not count, and I believe she would have been deemed out and their team would have lost. And I believe there's also something in the rule there that you cannot be helped by a teammate. You're correct. Yeah, you cannot be helped by uh, a teammate or a coach because there's, uh, you know, you see it all the time where maybe somebody runs past third and the coach you know, kind of shoves them back to the base. That's a, that's an out. Yes. So two of the girls on the opposing team, and I apologize, it's been long enough since I wrote this down, which, which team was which here. Two of the opposing team from the opposing team get her to her feet and they help her around the second, third, and on her way to home to touch home plate to win the game. And people were stunned, but when they interviewed these ladies, said, This wasn't our moment. We certainly didn't want to win a game because she was injured and couldn't touch the bases. I said, that was her moment. That wasn't ours. We just did what we thought was right. And again, much like the OU softball, such a refreshing thing to see that how, how many, how many teams out there, Brad would have said, Hey, we're going to win if she can't touch the base. Yeah, that's uh, I think there's a lot of teams out there that just would have said, well, that, that, that's not our problem or, or whatever. So it's definitely, um, yeah, I, I think their attitude essentially was she, she beat us. You know, mm-hmm. She hit the ball over the fence. Uh, she won the game. Uh, just because she, she's physically incapacitated doesn't mean that we should leave her there and, and celebrate a, an unearned victory. Yeah, so you talk about sportsmanship at its finest. Um, there was such the, the perfect example. If, if we could play games like that all the time and they could end like that, um, Boy, wouldn't we be so far, so much better off um, in the world of sports today? Yeah, little, little empathy goes a long way. It sure does. So uh, that was that was that was a great thing to see again between a couple of uh, smaller colleges there in softball. So again, uh, we'll probably be back with you in a couple of weeks. We'll tackle another um, fun topic. We may go after the. Uh, college state of college sports for our next podcast but for tonight's view from the press box for brad hallier this is scott hogan god bless have a great summer